You've seen the best. You've seen the worst. Now here's the rest of both worlds. I'm Gayfesh, and I'll still fill you with crumpets, madam. And I'm Ari, and make way for Sherlock Holmes. And today we will be discussing the Star Trek The Next Generation episodes Elementary Dear Data and The Outrageous Okana. So I'm quarantining, which is oh, annoying. Dear. <laughs> yeah, I was a close contact and I have a sore throat. So far, my rapid test says I do not have the COVID, but we don't know. So I'm staying away from everyone in my house. Including my cat, because apparently cats can get COVID. Yeah, I remember seeing, like, when uh, COVID was first coming around, there was, like, a tiger at a zoo that caught it, and so... Yeah, and I mean, I don't know if it does anything, like, if it makes them sick or makes them die, but why would I want to give my my baby boy... you know covid so he keeps not understanding why he can't be in here with me i'm just hiding out in my bedroom i understand cats cats don't get boundaries my cat bean uh he will follow me into the bathroom regardless of whether i tell him to or not um it's just i'll just be sitting there actually um we have an unfinished basement so where there's pipes going through the wall At one end of the bathroom, there actually is a hole where Bean can crawl in and out. So, like, I'll just be (laughs) sitting on the toilet, and he just pops in. And Bean is the reason that I have Ollie, is because you, Bean magically adopted you. And then I was like, I want an orange cat like I used to have when I was a kid. (laughs) And so I started watching for orange kittens to adopt. Yeah, me and my ex, we we both had orange cats, and we kept bullying you with orange boy, orange boy, (laughs) orange boy. boy. And eventually you went and got one. I did, and his name is Ollie, and he's like 25 pounds. I don't even know how that happened, but the boy loves to eat. He's huge. He's a chunky boy. And they made it into our logo for the rest of both worlds because we both love our orange boys so much. Bean is not a chunky boy. He's very svelte, but what he is is fluffy. He just has... It's weird, too, because he's not like a fully long-haired cat. Like Most of his body is pretty normal, but... He, uh, especially in the winter, he gets that nice rough with just the big cheek tufts. Yeah, the cute little fluffs. Yeah. His, his tail is always just like a feather duster. It's just boof, big and fluffy and, and glorious. And he always sticks it straight up and it's great. <laughs> Bean is exactly what it would be like if my two cats had babies. Because I have one like medium long haired white cat with blue eyes. And then I have my orange boy, short hair boy. And so Bean is like if you mushed my two cats together. Of course, I just refer to Alice, my white cat, as your cat now, because when you came over to visit last time, she picked you. You warned me. You were like, she hates everyone, so you're probably not going to see her. And she spent the entire time in my lap. I couldn't believe her. She had to prove that I was a liar. (laughs) Cats, man. I know. So today we are talking about Elementary Dear Data. This is the third episode of the second season. It aired on my ninth birthday, the 5th of December, 1988. It was written by Brian Allen Lane and directed by Rob Bowman. I love how excited Data is to be playing Holmes in this. Oh, he is. He's so excited. And it's way better than last time. I didn't even want to punch him in the face once. Oh, he was being very obnoxious the first one. Like, I still loved it because I was thinking ahead to this episode. Right. But, you know, I I love how in character... For, For Data, because he doesn't really have emotions in the same way that humans do it's it's rare to see him actually get excited for something and so it's like this is his his fixation and so anytime he gets to get into it he's uh he goes goes all out yeah i i i loved it so let's let's go over the plot real quick before i start talking about little things (laughs) the enterprise is waiting around for a rendezvous with another ship so there's three days of downtime so jordy and data schedule some uh some time on the holodeck to play some sherlock holmes right and originally when he installs the program data walks in and figures it out immediately because it's based off of his extensive knowledge of sherlock holmes right it's a story that he's already read so he just skips to the end jordy gets mad and is like look we we spent all this time getting in costume and uh, scheduling time on the holodeck to do this and you jump to the end and data's like oh well should i have just let it play out a little more he's like no i wanted you to actually solve a mystery but you i wanted to be involved too buddy yeah like it felt like he felt like buddy this was supposed to be a two-person game game and you just played it by yourself you know <laughs> and they're having this conversation in 10 forward and pulaski is a one table over and she's listening she's like you're you're wasting your time jordy data isn't capable of actually solving a mystery all he's doing is running off of his memory in true pulaski form <laughs> yeah in true pulaski form of course but they make a wager that they can actually do a custom program 
that would actually challenge data and he'd still be able to solve it. And the line that did that, that I, I wrote, oh no, after I wrote this down was create an adversary capable of defeating data. And I noticed right away that they used the term data, not uh -huh. Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> and as soon as that line is uttered, it cuts to the bridge and Worf is like, there's a power surge. Like the computer mm. was working extra cycles to get that to happen. There's also no B plot. No, this is it. This is the, yeah. the whole thing. Um, I actually, I would say the B plot is like, Jordy's little uh, model ship, but that was just like a bookend, really. Right, because it opened the episode and closed the episode, but there was nothing going on with the ship. Mm -hmm. It was just one of those times, oh, it's downtime, so we get to go have a holodeck episode. And I gotta say, this is, uh, as far as holodeck malfunction episodes go, this is one of my absolute favorites, because it's not just a, oh no, something happened and the door's locked, and, and the, uh, obviously the safety protocols go down. Although, did they go down? We never actually see anyone they just get hurt. Think. They might have gone down that the murder protocol or the death protocol yeah. or whatever they called it might have been taken off. They pause it, but they're not sure. And it does make sense that it's not something you'd want to test. Like, at least when the first time it malfunctioned, they didn't know that anything had gone wrong until the guy got shot and was actually bleeding. Right. But this time they probably were remembering that one. And they're like, let's not take the chance. We're having a malfunction. Let's just assume things are dangerous. We don't want to get Dr. Pulaski killed. She's everybody favorite. <laughs> so what the computer does, because it was given the instruction of creating an adversary capable of defeating data, is it gives Moriarty self-awareness. He mm -hmm. becomes aware that he's in a holodeck. He becomes, he's able to call the arch and access ship systems. He is aware that he is a hologram. He's yep. aware that Holmes and and uh, Watson are not, in fact, Holmes and Watson, but are Jordy and Data. What a great actor, too. He was such a, like, I loved the guy who played Moriarty. I love him, too. He plays it great, and he, he doesn't play it just like he's, you know, just a straight villain. I mean, he's written as a villain, but because this accident of Jordy's instructions gave him sentience, he starts to grow beyond his original programming. So he holds Pulaski hostage and like Data and Jordy are going and like, they don't know anything's wrong yet once he's been held, once uh, she's been taken hostage, they think, oh, well, it's just part of the program. Let's go in and examine the footfalls and Data is proving Pulaski wrong. He's actually able to deduce and figure out things and, and track her down. Yep. But once Moriarty reveals that he is more than just a holodeck character, Data's like, we got, he tries, first he tries to shut off the holodeck program because Moriarty draws a picture of the Enterprise and hands it to him. Right. But he's not able to because Moriarty has locked out the holodeck controls. So call a senior staff meeting. They're like, uh, we got a hostage situation in the holodeck. We can't shut it down without also killing Pulaski. So what are we going to do here? And Jordy's just like, I can't believe I just did this. I can't believe <laughs> I. But. <laughs> and and but of course Picard's like, look, you you didn't do anything wrong. You you didn't. No, Picard's like, it's a chance for me to cosplay. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. Like, I, I love that when they're like Picard and Worf are like gonna get down there. Like, they take the time to get in costume, and I'm just, wouldn't you just go? Like, you've got a hostage situation, and Moriarty already knows who are you dressing up for, and Worf doesn't even go for in. Himself. He just like self. <laughs> I know. Oh, and do you notice when uh, Picard like uh, punches out the uh, his his uh, top hat? Worf like flinches. Worf, okay, and we're going to talk about that. I have a whole thing. I, I yes, I I have the the whole point of this episode is Worf's reaction <laughs> to the pop out hat. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I love it so much. <laughs> but so Picard goes meets with Moriarty, who has been a very courteous uh, abductor of Pulaski. He's been having just you know polite conversation with her and having tea and crumpets and 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 scones. He reveals to Picard he knows who he is. He also has constructed a device that allows him to shake the ship when he pulls a lever. But he's not really doing that to destroy the ship. He's doing it to get Picard's attention, which he has. Right. What he wants is a way to get out of the holodeck. And Picard's like, that may not be possible. If you step out those doors, you'll vanish. After a few seconds, at least. But eventually, he's able to negotiate with Mario. He's like, look, we don't have the technology yet to bring you outside of the holodeck. But we can save your program. And one day, when it is possible to take you out, we'll reactivate you. And because it's clear he is has become a sentient being. And he's coming back. 
there will be another episode, right? So let's talk about that. So, uh, funny thing, when they wrote this episode, they assumed that uh, Sherlock Holmes was in the public domain. Now, it is now, but at that point, it in fact had not yet entered it. And the estate of Arthur Conan Doyle contacted them and said, hey... What the hell? Yeah, they really, they do that a lot. They tried to ruin that Enola Holmes movie, too. They're really weird about it. There's certain things that they still have uh, control over, like certain stories, so certain character elements of certain stories are still, are not in public domain, so they have controls over that, but back then they still had more control. And I don't think they sued, but they did, like, say, you should have contacted us and it was just i don't know who messed up in the writer's room or some Mm. somebody should have caught it somebody should have been checking anyway big snafu they had always intended to do a sequel to this with moriarty and they do get to one yeah uh in season six and the reason season six is because it took them five years to work out the legal difficulties oh wow okay so we will see (laughs) we will see a sequel to this one we we do get a return of moriarty but it's gonna be a while interesting okay yeah, I remember hearing, like I said, about that Enola Holmes thing. They didn't think the way that he was presented was in true Sherlock Holmes fashion or something. And it was like, people are allowed to, like, do different takes on characters. Yeah, I, I don't know. Sorry, if you don't like how somebody writes a character that's in public domain, that's not your place to say. Sorry, he's a public domain character. People get to do what they want with him. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. Then, I mean, if they have a problem with Enola Holmes and not those Robert Downey Jr. movies, then they're priorities are in the wrong place (laughs) i liked the first uh rdj movie i didn't like the second one the second one just turned into action swap and it wasn't really i remember not hating the first one but i watched them in a row like my friend Uh put the second one on as soon as the first one ended so they're just all blended together they're all just one thing yeah yeah no the second one in my head yeah (laughs) there was way too much action in it and like sure sherlock holmes is you know he's he's not one to shy away from fisticuffs but right. he's a, he's still supposed to be an intellectual character. Uh, the it's the, the the crux of the stories are supposed to be him using his amazing powers of deduction to figure stuff out, not dodging a machine gun. Right. And I understood what they were doing, trying to make it like an action movie, but there was too much stupidity and action. Like, I don't understand why people don't make more smart action movies, because those are the ones that everybody always ooze and awes over. The uh, the action in the first movie uh, with RDJ, I thought was really good. Like that boxing scene where he analyzes mm. the entire fight in his mind in slow motion and lays yeah, out exactly familiar. what every fight's going to do, uh, what every move in the fight's going to be, and then plays it out in the sequence. That's smart action. That is, okay, we're in Sherlock's uh, brain, we see how he does the fight. So that that was cool. That's a cool way to do it. But just, I don't know, a machine gun mowing down a train or something like that, that was dumb. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so one of my favorite lines of this entire episode was Chief Engineer LaForge. I just like hearing it. I think it sounds good. <laughs> I think that he is so good in the role as chief engineer, even if he did massively screw this up on accident. Actually, one of my favorite lines was in the uh, the conference room right after Jordy realizes the uh, command that he had given to the commuter that he said capable of defeating Data, cuts to Picard, and Picard goes, Mert. I know, I know, I know. I was so excited he said it again. <laughs> he said shit again. <laughs> I know. I was like, ooh, yeah, I love when he does that. Um, I, I was so excited about that, too, because it was so, it was such a cute response because it's like, oh, man, what are we going to do in this situation? Because it is a hard situation. It and is it, an oh shit situation. It really is. Yeah. Do you think that Data writes Sherlock Holmes slash fiction? Slash fiction? No. Uh, <laughs> fan, fan fiction, maybe? <laughs> Data is capable of, of, of sex, but I don't think that will come up in the next episode. It's not He's not really a sexually minded person, so I don't right. think that's what he would write. I could definitely see him writing some of his own Sherlock Holmes stories. I think they might be a little tedious. Um, <laughs> I can only imagine a Sherlock Holmes story written by Data. Several seasons down the line, uh, Data writes a poem that uh, is actually a great poem. I love the poem, but it is very Data-ish. And like <laughs> a lot of people have problems, like like he does like a reading in 10 forward and everyone's just like, oh, Data, okay, stop, stop. <laughs> <laughs> There was one point in the opening part before Jordy is disappointed in Data's fantasy that he's like reading out loud from a book and it was a very reading rainbow moment. 
Oh no, he wasn't <laughs> reading. He was writing. He was writing oh. down. I mean, it, I'm pretty sure it was an actual quote from from uh, a Holmes story. But like he, because he was serving as Watson, and Watson is the narrator of the Holmes stories. So he was. Oh, just, that makes sense. Yeah. And it was when Data was playing the violin, and he was describing the the violin uh, playing of Holmes in that. And Lavar Burton's uh, British accent was really good. So is this where I find out Lavar Burton is actually British, like every other actor? No, he's American. Because you, because you, as my friend, know this is a common thing that happens to me, <laughs> where I think I know that a person is, you know, American, and then they're Tom Holland, or they're who's who's the guy from Star Star Wars that I also was surprised about. Oh, uh, Finn. Why well, can't Finn, I remember the yeah. actor's name? Yeah, I remember you were like surprised that he was uh, he was British. I'm like, I don't know. I, I've seen interviews with him. He's he's yeah. actually. Um, Andrew Garfield, you didn't know he was British either. Didn't I didn't you? know he was British either. Yeah, so that's two Spider Men that you didn't know were British. Two different ones, and it happens to me all the time. I'll text you and I'll be like, "This person's British." Like <laughs> Superman. Superman is British. Yep. <laughs> anyway, I, Superman I, and Spider Man right now are trying to be James Bond. Both of them. Yeah, I cannot see Tom Holland as James Bond. I am sorry. I could definitely see a Henry Cavill James Bond though. I'd be for that. I think Henry Cavill would be a great James Bond. He's British, apparently. <laughs> but while we're talking about accents, um, one thing I noticed is Gates McFadden has a mid-Atlantic accent. Is that what that's called? A mid-Atlantic accent? Yeah, it's the, the old-timey style of talking because the idea was they like wanted these films. Like that all old actresses talked like. Yeah, be, yeah. like, like the Catherine Hepburn and that style. Right. So they replaced her with uh, uh, Diana Muldar, who also uses a mid-Atlantic accent. And... Mm-hmm. They're the only characters in Star Trek that I can think of, other than like maybe one-off guest stars that use mid-Atlantic accents. Yeah, I can't think of any others, but I I had never known that's what it was called. But I've always called it like the old-timey actress accent, so I know exactly yeah. what you mean. And I can't think of anybody that I've seen so far. And the reason it's called a mid-Atlantic accent or a transatlantic accent is because it's supposed to sound halfway between an American and a British accent. The idea was. We're making these movies that should be played throughout the English-speaking world. They they kind of instead of wanting to like have it set in a certain place, they wanted it to just feel more. Uh, oh, that makes sense. But it seems so traditionally yeah. American to use that accent at this point. Yeah, well, well, yeah. Um, because of Hollywood. I mean, that's the classic right. Hollywood movies. They all use that accent, and I'm pretty sure Gates uses it because her experience was in theater, and Diana Muldaur has been an actor since. The 60s, so, you know, that was, that it was more in vogue to use it back then. I'm trying to think, like, it's interesting uh, to see actors who, you know, have been around forever who would use that accent in, like, early stuff, like, um, Barbra Streisand. My mom was watching uh, Funny Girl the other day. And uh, I noticed that she was using a mid-Atlantic accent in that. But if you hear, hear her now, she just sounds like, you know, she's got the, the, the New York accent. Yeah. So she probably, I mean, because it was still very popular to do it at the time that Funny Girl would have come out. That yeah, it was like early 70s. Right. That And she's grown past it because most people don't use it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so when the villain, quote unquote, is revealed to be Moriarty, I was a little upset by it because it was already a known variable of Sherlock Holmes. I thought it was going to be an alien of some sort. <laughs> because isn't because it's like let's do something that isn't part of a Sherlock Holmes story, but Moriarty is definitely part of a Sherlock Holmes story. Honestly, I don't think enough people are paying attention to how smart the ship's computer is cuz like as powerful and as dangerous as Moriarty is, the computer made him. Yeah. That's true. And the computer made the decision, well, if I'm going to create a villain in the Sherlock Holmes style to defeat Data, who's playing Sherlock Holmes, I might as well roll it into Moriarty. Yeah, that's true. Maybe it's more of a smart choice than I realized, because my first thought was, but he's already a known variable, you know? Mm -hmm. But the computer is wiser than the Oracle of Delphi, so. (laughs) It's true, that's what Moriarty said. When they have the piece of paper that Moriarty hands them, and they refuse to show it to the camera, (laughs) I was like, it's the Enterprise. (laughs) Yeah. It's obviously the Enterprise. It's gonna be the Enterprise. I was just like, just show me the Enterprise. <laughs> I was also noticing when Picard was explaining to Moriarty how the holodeck works and how he's not made of normal matter, but uh, holodeck matter. They've kind of retconned that because in like Voyager and stuff, they say it's just photons and force fields. But here oh. they're saying it is 
he is made of real matter. It's just a, an impermanent matter. It's uh, it's only holodeck matter, so it can only oh, survive. Oh, that is interesting that they would have changed that. Yeah. Well, and he made a comment about the teleporter or transporter too, right? Saying something like, "Well, that's a different kind of matter," and like kind of implying that maybe eventually they'd be able to merge the holodeck and the transporter together. I. It doesn't make sense to me that uh, anything that you could generate in the holodeck that's made out of real matter would need the holodeck. To be on for it to remain because if you're creating matter the matter is there it would take more energy to convert it back into energy right it, it should just right its default state should just be there for that reason i don't think you would use the transporter to create flesh and blood human or the, the holodeck to create actual flesh and blood human characters those would be force fields and photons because otherwise it would be unethical to turn them off you would be killing them that is true that's a good point um, I don't remember what the Technobabble, like, response that um, Jordy gave for solving the problem, but it had something to do with beaming something into the holodeck so that it would disperse the holograms. And then they all look at him and they're like, what about Dr. Pulaski? And he's like, oh, yeah, she died too. Oh, yeah, and it would cut through human flesh as well. <laughs> I just... I was beside myself. I was like, why is he okay with murdering Paul? <laughs> I mean, I get not liking her, but like it was a weird <laughs> response, you know. <laughs> you know, why did nobody think of beaming her out of there? Why did no one think of beaming her out of there is the best question <laughs> I did not think of because right, they are able to identify that she is like at one point they're like computer, where is the woman? And they're like, Oh, she's here in this holodeck. So they could have just beamed her out out into the teleport room right and they could have said something like uh we uh, something with the holodeck program we're not able to isolate her from the other programs they could have right. just thrown in a line like that to to dismiss it but i don't think it got brought up and i just i wonder if it was never thought of because trans or te- i keep using the word teleport but it's transporting it's you can um, say trans- teleporter it's fine okay <laughs> transporting between parts of the enterprise is not something we normally do so maybe just nobody thought of it i don't know <laughs> it's not as commonly used uh, in early seasons as in later, because usually it's you want to teleport something onto the pad or like from pad to pad. But site to site is the kind of transporting that you'd be talking about. And that ends up being more of a common thing later. I think really the only um, time that we saw somebody beam something not to the transporter pad was a couple episodes ago when they had to beam uh, someone directly to sickbay. Yeah. It was, it was Tasha, wasn't it? They, they beamed Tasha directly to sickbay? I think so. Sickbay. That sounds familiar. Yeah. So, yeah. and I don't think that the, the, I don't think sickbay has its own transporter pad. So I think they just, you know, beam, beam from to the floor or something like that. Um, but it's possible. I, I assume it probably requires double the energy output because you would need to... You're basically beaming them up and then beaming them back out again. Right, like simultaneously? You you don't have the focal uh, point of the uh, transporter pad to do it. Okay. So, yeah, it, it would probably just require twice the energy and it's probably a little more risky than just beaming onto the pad. So after they decide that they're going to cosplay and go in in their cosplay which john luke is very upset that he was left out of um (laughs) before we actually see them go in we get a scene with moriarty and pulaski and she's hanging out and he's like here would you like one lump or two she doesn't know what that means which i thought was weird um and then she's like he's like here have a scone because i hate i hate that pronunciation of scone and um she says, thank you for the tea and crumpets. And then, of course, at the end, he's like, I'll still stuff you with crumpets. <laughs> and they call crumpets, they call them crumpets for the rest of the episode after they have a discussion about it being a scone. And I was very upset about this. There's a huge difference between scones and crumpets. I will confess, I, I don't know what a crumpet is. So a crumpet is kind of what we call English muffins. Like okay. it's a, it's like it's got those holes in them, but it's more like the Australian toaster biscuits. You remember those okay. from the nineties? Oh yeah, 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 those are delicious. Um, so it's more like those, whereas a scone is like a pastry type thing. Okay, I don't. Yeah, know. That Some makes baker sense. is gonna take 
offense to what I just said, but that's that's the, that's the basic difference. <laughs> no, no, that makes sense to me. Yeah, because I've made scones before, but so, they're hugely um, different. Like an English muffin is basically what we well, they would be offended. British people would be offended that I said crumpets and English muffins are the same, but they're basically the same. <laughs> but yes, the wharf hat pop response, I loved it so much. But they're like, <laughs> let's not wear our uniforms in because that might arise, like bring suspicion and it might give him more information than he needs to know. But they had wharf the alien man dress up in case he needed to run in there. <laughs> yeah, it's the Enterprise has like a full complement of security officers. They could have had a human one go in. I know. Or, you know, maybe they could just program the holodeck so that it stops recognizing aliens as aliens. It just treats people like characters that they're supposed to be playing. Yeah, I don't know. I thought it was weird. I was like, you have so many security people. You're going to have this guy rush in there. Don't you think this is going to give Moriarty a bunch of information he doesn't have? Yeah. Oh, so <laughs> I keep thinking about this whole making them into into real people, like, you know, making Moriarty into a real person. And basically, we just saved him as a backup so that it could be done in the future if it happened, you know, mm-hmm. sans the like legal problems with using Sherlock Holmes. Um, But look, if they could change holodeck people into real people, Riker would be married to like seven minuets at this point. (laughs) 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 I don't think Moriarty's the first person we're going to rush in there and make into a real person. (laughs) This is also kind of like a little precursor to um, a lot of the AI rights episodes that uh, Star Trek gets into. Mm -hmm. Um, We're actually... Um, when when Moriarty asks about Data and says, "Oh, is he a machine or is he something more?" and Picard's like, "No, he's he's more than just a machine." That actually is the central uh, premise of an episode this season called "The Measure of a Man." We'll get to that pretty soon. But then in Voyager, uh, later seasons of Voyager, the Doctor was very focused on like AI rights. I remember there was an episode where the Doctor had written a a hollow novel, uh, specifically about holographic rights. And mm, interesting. He had sent it to publishers in the Alpha Quadrant, but he then, after getting some feedback from uh, ship crewmates, because they felt like they were being inserted into the program, and he, they felt like they were being unfairly criticized in the program, he decided he was going to make some revisions, and he sent those revisions over to the publishers, but the publishers are like, oh, we already published it. And he's like, I didn't authorize you to do that. And he's like, well, you don't have to. You're, you're not a person. Oh, okay. So that's interesting. So that this continues on. Yeah, this yeah. discussion does. Yeah. The line that Moriarty says that says whatever I was when this began I have grown I am understanding more and more to me felt like a line that was written for us to look at data and go well that's what data's done like whatever mm-hmm. he was at the beginning of this show he's so much more than he was when he first started you know mm-hmm. and I felt like in its own way it was supposed to be like a parallel to data for us to experience in a different kind of like framework Moriarty in the holodeck but that line was I thought very poignant and very pointed at data Mm -hmm. I assume this is a very well liked episode right it's a very popular episode um it's uh definitely one of my uh favorites it's not in my top three but it's uh, it's pretty high up there I liked it I really did like you know Like, I have in my notes, and I think I said already, you know, Brent Spiner did a much better job of playing Sherlock Data this time than he did last time. Last time, as I said to you in the podcast, can I punch him in the face? (laughs) You know, (laughs) I did not enjoy him. But this episode, without a B-plot and everything, I still loved. I loved this episode. I also loved that it was a Geordie episode, because we're starting to get more of those, you Uh know, which I enjoy. And so, I mean, I really liked this one, even if it had a lot of Dr. Pulaski. Well, uh, that's probably the one saving grace of the next episode. Let's get into that. Oh, good Lord. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So the next episode we're going to talk about is the outrageous Okana. It is the fourth episode of the second season. It aired on the 12th of December, 1988. It was written by Burton Armis. And the story is by Les Menchan, Lance Dixon, and David Landsberg, directed by Robert Becker. Armis. First you kill Tasha, now you kill comedy. What the hell? This was such a weird episode. What an incredibly weird episode. Like, I couldn't stand most of it. I was rolling my eyes the whole dang time. It was, this episode felt like 
an episode Data would write to try to understand comedy himself, because none of the jokes are funny. None of them, especially Guinan's joke, was not funny. You had Whoopi Goldberg, a seasoned comedian, and like they brought on a holographic uh, comedian played by Joe Piscopo. He's a stand-up comic, and none of his stuff was funny. And Brent Spiner's a very funny person, and... And none. I don't think I laughed once. Like, none no, of it, it was, was funny. Yeah. Well, I mean, Jerry Lewis. Who Who actually thinks Jerry Lewis is funny? Is, are there people? Uh, they're mostly French. Uh, so maybe <laughs> they did that for Picard. Actually, here's the funny thing. They originally wanted the holographic comic. They wanted Jerry Lewis for that. But he had a scheduling conflict. Oh, so they went the second best route, an SNL guy that could impersonate him? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so the plot, that's the B plot, yeah. is Data tries to figure out comedy. The main plot is that some Sebastian Stan looking guy shows up. screws half the Enterprise. Including Terry Hatcher. And Terry Hatcher, who's apparently a member of the Enterprise. Uh Uh-huh. And, um, oh, and we didn't talk about it in last episode, but there was an ensign that was the sister from Mad About You. Like, very two very famous people were in these two episodes. Huh. Like, very famous for the 90s. Let me, (laughs) let me, you know, this is 88, 88, so they haven't quite gotten there yet. Yeah. But, like... I so the plot is he shows up, he screws a couple people, including Terry Hatcher and I think Deanna, and um goes. I think Deanna wanted it, but I don't think they actually. So when he's ta- when they're talking on the view screen with several of the people, and they say, "Well, he's been in." He comes on the the bridge, and he they cut to like, and he does his like suave, like I'm here to be the Han Solo of this episode, yep. <laughs> and it cuts to Deanna, and she's like got this smirk on her face. I think they totally did it. That's possible. Okana reads to me like, do you, you know what a Mary Sue is? Of course, you know what a Mary Sue is. I do know what a Mary Sue is, yes. Interestingly. Should we explain what a Mary Sue is for people who are listening that might not know? You can explain a Mary Sue and then I will explain the origin of the Mary Sue. Okay, so uh, this is going to be bad because I only know like what I've gleaned from picking it up here and there. But a Mary Sue is kind of like a generic character that everything always goes right for them and there's no reason that they should have their powers or that the things that happen to them should happen to them. Yeah, and it's usually like an author self-insert, like um, Hermione. (laughs) So, um, (laughs) Oh, that's the second time I'm going to bring up Hermione this episode because Okana stole the Time Turner. Did you see that it looks just like the time turner? I don't remember what the time turner looks like, but I'll, I'll, just like I will that take thing your word he stole. on it. Yeah, or he didn't steal if you've finished the episode. The origin of the phrase Mary Sue actually comes from a, 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 a 1970s Star Trek fanfic. Oh, really? In which it was a character, I, I don't remember her last name, but her, her name was Mary Sue something. And she was a 15-year-old lieutenant on the Starship Enterprise who was just the bestest officer ever, who just everyone was in love with, including the captain. Really weird that it's 15 years old, but everyone's in love with her. And then, like, I think she ends up, like, dying to save the ship at the end and everyone cries. And it is famously bad, so famously bad, that she got a trope named after her. Wow. Yeah. And then Star Trek just went ahead and made a Gary Stew. Gary Stew is the (laughs) the male version of the Mary Sue for this one. For this one, yeah. He feels like, honestly, he kind of feels like who Gene Roddenberry fancies himself as. Because Gene Roddenberry f***s, like, a lot. Yeah. Uh, He has had sex with many a person in Hollywood. And so I kind of got like, this is just like the idealized version of who he wants to be, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and- yeah, I can see that, that this is like, everything always goes right, especially at the end when it turns out he didn't actually get the girl pregnant and he didn't actually steal the thing. He's just here to be the suave guy that mansplains everything to everybody. <laughs> no, he's just the roguish charmer who seems like he's a bad boy, but actually hasn't done anything wrong. He just, you know, has that the little irreverent edge to him, so everyone blames him for things. Now, Good God, yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to blame this on the actor. I think the actor, for one thing, I think he's hot. Uh, I think he's very cute. Uh, I think that beard works for him. Um, oh, I think he's an attractive dude. I think that's why I keep calling him Sebastian Stan. But, like, yeah. it reminded me, Did you have you ever seen Once Upon a Time? 
the uh, TV I watched show. like the first episode and I remember nothing about it. So Sebastian Stan was in that before he was ever Bucky as the Mad Hatter who last lost his daughter, but he's in the real world as just like Sebastian Stan being attractive. Right. And that's how I think of Sebastian Stan. And so he reminded me of that particular character, the Mad Hatter character. But it was so like even the 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 piratey shirt, like everything about it was supposed to be I'm just a roguish, you know, guy. Mm hmm. There's a term for that, and I can't think of it off the top of my head, but it's the whole point of that Kubrick movie, Barry Lyndon. Like, there's a there's a term for it, like a puck, a roguish person. I can't think of what it is, but like scoundrel. Star Trek. Yeah, Star Wars they use the word scoundrel in this mo- in the in this episode, I think. But yeah, I mean, his I mean, outfit, it's, it's Han Solo. It's it's every his dude. outfit is literally Han Solo. Like it's they literally they had- Han Solo. <laughs> They have, like, the brown, black, and white uh, contrast to his outfit. He's supposed to be Han Solo. The vest. He's he's flying a a, a run-down junker of a ship that never works right, and they they help him fix it and all that. Yeah, no, he's he's Han Solo. So we kind of got off track with the plot, but the plot, I mean, that's it. That's the plot. He shows up, he does some adventures, and... And there's, like, two other ships that show up that pose no threats to the Enterprise. They make it painfully clear that these ships only have lasers that wouldn't even penetrate the the, the ship's uh, deflector array. And they don't care. They're going to die anyway. <laughs> They're going to die anyway because uh, for one of them, they uh, the guy believes that uh, Okana has impregnated his daughter and the other believes that Okana has absconded with the royal jewels or something like that. The time turner. <laughs> and it turns out that actually uh, he does have the jewel, but he didn't steal it. It was given to him by like the prince of the one... Of, of of the one uh, ship to be given as like a uh, a marriage proposal to the pregnant woman who was impregnated by that by that prince dude and o- Okana was just like he would be ferrying them back and forth because these like these are two rival planets they don't like each other very much but it ends up being like a uh, you know um, Romeo and Juliet Romeo and Juliet yeah. except they don't die at the end they it looks like this pregnancy is going to bring the, the houses together or whatnot. Um, and, and O'Connor <laughs> just gets to sail off and, and be his roguish self. Um, I thought it was interesting, and like some people might say it was a little cringy how taken Wesley was with O'Connor. I didn't think so. I thought it was normal. I thought it was very normal, because I remember being Wesley's age, and I remember knowing people like that who, from a, a juvenile mind, they're like, oh wow, they're so confident, and, and they're so... Uh, charming and, and oh, I want to be, be this like guy. That. I like everything yeah. about him. And as an adult, I look at this guy and be like, um, I don't trust this guy. Uh, I, 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 I know this guy and, uh, uh, stop it. <laughs> but that's our adult in us, right? Like, cause yeah. as a kid, you look at a guy like that and it looks like he's getting along in his whole life with just like skating by, by the seat of his pants. And it's kind of cool. And like, he seems to be fine. So why can't I be more like him? And everybody mm-hmm. likes him and he gets the girl and all this kind of stuff. But that's the very first thing I want to talk about now is is I did not think the way that Terry Hatcher responded was very Starfleet at all. I don't think any of the women he was sleeping with acted very Starfleet. And can you I kept imagining the whole episode I wanted Tasha there because Tasha would have thrown him across the friggin' room, you know? <laughs> he would have hit on her and he would have broken his wrist and he would have been like, I understand, no hard feelings, I'll just get this patched up. Yep. He would have been like, all right, you're out of my league. <laughs> <laughs> but the fact that as soon as he steps off the transporter, Terry Hatcher's all like, oh, hi. Hello there. She said hello there. I noticed because it's the Obi-Wan line. She did rebuff him a little bit. Like he was talking about how she's like, oh, you must have like the noblest heritage because of your beauty. And she's like, yeah, I'm sure you meant that to all the other women you said it to. <laughs> okay, so that's true. She did say that. <laughs> she said that. And then he's like, ah, yeah, but it's uh, it's the way I say it, isn't it? And that's when she's listening to him. And uh, that's when uh, and he does later just walk right into her quarters. Um but when Worf goes to pick him up, because, you know, the two ships have shown up and, and Picard's like, get this asshole to the bridge. Worf right. shows up. He's in another officer's quarters. And I'm just thinking, she's a Starfleet officer. And there's the security guy saying, this guy needs to come with. Why is she like, no, I'm still going to smooch him. Like, no, you're, it was you're so a member of the crew. What it are you so doing? It was so badly written. Yeah, it was so badly written because that's not what Starfleet officers would do when she's... And I get that whoever, whatever sexist jerk, oh, that's right, it's Armas, wrote this episode, <laughs> um, like, thinks that's how women are, that their their sexual drive would over, you know, drive their ability to be a good Starfleet officer 
officer, I was just groaning. I was just upset. I was yeah, very she would have been like, I would have written it so, like, you know, obviously, he's hot. She wants to have sex. I understand. I kind of want to have sex with him. But if she... What's that term? Is it himbo? I have never used this term himbo. before. Yeah, he's himbo. kind of a himbo. But, like, once Worf walks through, she should have been like, dude, what... You messed up if if Picard's calling for you. You gotta get out of here. Not only is Picard calling for you, the chief of security or whatever his actual title is has come to get you. Time to go, buddy. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, so how about the implication that Dato can't have sex? (laughs) It wasn't that he can't have sex. It's that he doesn't have a sexual drive. Obviously, he can have sex. He had sex with Tasha. He's fully functional, programmed in multiple techniques. He just doesn't have... He's asexual. I really wanted him to turn and look at him and say, I'm fully functioning. (laughs) Yeah, he's he's aspec. I mean, asexual people Mm -hmm. can have sex and can enjoy having sex. They just don't have the drive. Right. Um, So... I guess we can t- we'll go back to the comedy plot because that's where we are in my notes. Yeah. Um, so when Guinan says, I've never seen you laugh, I thought, oh, God, you don't want to. We saw it once. It was pretty <laughs> horrifying. <laughs> like, please, please don't make Data laugh. I'm sure that gets better over time. Does he does he continue to learn to actually laugh at things? Uh, yeah, actually, in Star Trek Generations, the movie, he finally gets his emotion chip installed and he starts laughing at jokes from like seven years ago. OK, so this all felt very familiar. And now that you're saying that, that makes so much sense because as we all know I've seen the movies I just have yeah. not seen the show and there was I remember there being a lot of focus on Data and his emotions in one of the movies I just didn't know which one yeah it was Star Trek Generations it was the first movie so and and it, what he's laughing at is like a seven year old joke Jody had tort- told him on the bridge during the Farpoint mention- mission so it was like a, an old <laughs> joke he was just like catching up on the backlog of jokes he had been told and <laughs> laughing at them much well, that's later funny. Um, I love Guinan's costume design. I meant to bring this up last time we saw her, and mm-hmm. I don't think I did, but her costume design is so cool, and her hats remind me of, like, I church lady hats. hats. Yeah, I know. I love uh-huh. them. Like, I love everything about her costume design. But her joke was so bad. I, I, I'm, and I think you're a droid and already, I'm annoyed. I, yes. Yeah. So bad because a i don't ever find puns funny okay congratulations you put another word that sounds like that word in the place of the other word so proud puns, of you <laughs> hang on puns are funny but they're not funny them. they're not supposed to laugh at a pun you're supposed to groan at a pun puns are funny mostly for the person telling them you're telling them specifically to elicit that groan reaction from other people so it is That's humor true. but it's a very different kind and so it's not the appropriate joke for her to have told in that moment. The way Whoopi Goldberg played that, I could tell her, I could tell, she's a comedian. She knows what's funny. And I know right. just sitting there, she's just like, how do I sell this? This is so not a funny joke. It's not funny. And like the look on her face. And then there's a <laughs> point where he leaves and he comes back and she, and then he gets called away and he's like, I will be back. And she has this look like, my life. <laughs> like, <laughs> That he's going to come back and tell her more jokes. Like, I kind of felt bad for her. But no, I did not think her joke was funny. Like, nothing in this entire episode was funny. But I have to ask, do you know when Ronald D. Moore started writing for Star Trek? Because for a quick second, while he's flipping through the computer trying to decide what holographic comedian to go see, and Uh before he picks... Joe Piscopo, and it says, and they just call him the comedian, I think, the whole time. The comic. The comic. Um, it, it says his name is Ronald B. Moore. Yes. And I thought that was weird. <laughs> Ronald B. Moore is actually uh, a different Ronald Moore who works on Star Trek. Oh, really? So uh, those things are usually called Okudagrams, named for Michael Okuda, who was one of the main visual artists on The Next Generation. Uh, they're called Okudagrams because he, he he usually likes to hide little Easter eggs and stuff. So usually okay. if you see a list of names, they're mostly going to be names of like producers or or just uh, uh, um, cast members or stuff Remember like that. Remember when WandaVision did that and threw me for uh-huh. Such a loop because all the names of the people were people who worked on the show when they were finding out the names of the people in Westview threw me for such a loop. Yeah. But yeah, so um, usually if you're seeing a list of names, you're going to be like, okay, that person works on the show. Uh, And so it was Ronald B. Moore, who's a different guy, and I don't remember what it is he does. Okay, he's a visual effects supervisor. So uh, he helped (laughs) assemble this graphic. So that makes sense. He would put himself in there. Yeah, that would make sense. And then the very first joke that Joe Piscopo makes is transphobic. 
and I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I was pretty pissed off. What, what, what was the joke? I missed it. It was some guy, Tip, Tip O'Neill. Oh, Tip yeah, O'Neil Tip O'Neill in a dress. Right. Yeah. And I was like, ugh. You know, it right. me, have you seen that meme where it's the kid running down the hallway and there's like a ghost chasing him and it's like me trying to enjoy media from my youth and then it, the ghost <laughs> is labeled transphobic Transphobia. Joke. Yeah. Yeah. And uh-huh. that, I, I mean, it was it was not as transphobic as jokes can be, but it was still transphobic enough that I groaned out loud. It was certainly not Ace Ventura level. Well, we'll say that. Right. But it still made me go, oh, my God, come on, guys. You know? <laughs> yeah. Joe Piscopo doing a Jerry Lewis impression was first off, Jerry Lewis isn't funny. And second off, Joe Piscopo doing the impersonation is not funny either. But there was one funny moment in that. And it's when they've finished acting like Jerry Lewis and Data right. asks, so is that supposed to be funny? But he forgets to turn off the voice first, so he starts asking, so is that supposed to be funny? And then he takes out the teeth. <laughs> yeah, that one, that part actually was funny. <laughs> I think I think Data was funnier than Joe Piscopo or, or Whoopi Goldberg in this episode. Be- just the unintentional comedy that he did was was funnier than, than either of them. And it's because he's not written, supposed to be like intentionally funny, and uh, Brent Spiner really knows how to play up the unintentionalness of his character. But Whoopi Goldberg and Joe Episcopo, they're written, they're supposed to be funny. They're supposed to know what humor is and understand it. But it was written by somebody who doesn't know or understand humor, so they were kind of left holding the bag. Yeah, that's true. I mean, apparently Armis... Is not a funny guy because nothing in this episode was funny. Like the like we talked about the Whoopi Goldberg uh, joke, not funny. Um, yeah. The Jerry Lewis stuff, not funny. Like I remember my great grandparents like rewatching stuff in syndication when I was a kid that had like Jerry Lewis and my grandma would watch Lawrence Welk and stuff. And you just have to sit there and look at it and go. What about this is entertaining, and why is it so entertaining? They're continuing to watch it like forty years later. You know, but I have never understood Jerry Lewis. So it was a weird way to go for me, but it felt like maybe they were reaching out to the older audiences of Star Trek. I don't know. I I hated it. Um, Also, here's a I'm reading the Memory Alpha article and here's an indictment of Joe Piscopo. Apparently he was allowed to improvise most of his lines. Oh, no. So apparently his unfunniness was just, that was on just him. Just him. Yeah. <laughs> they thought, we'll get this SNL guy in. He'll just be funny. Yeah. Nothing about it was funny. And I felt like at the end, when they um, have all the audience just laughing for no reason, I thought, in, in its own way, it's actually kind of a scathing condemnation of comedy, right? Because uh-huh. you do go to bars and people do, like, there's a joke in the office of that's why bars have a two-drink minimum, is because uh-huh. that's the only way they're going to laugh at stand-up comedy, right? And, like, so it felt like the whole episode was almost a scathing condemnation of comedy if you take yourself outside of it a little bit. But I don't know. I hated well, it. Maybe it's that the ship's computer doesn't understand comedy either. <laughs> and the ship's computer created the comic and the audience. So maybe it was just... That is true. Because it's a computer. It's it's a computer trying to teach an android how to be funny. That is very a good point, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so now to get into the blatant sexism of the episode. All right, so now we have these two houses, both alike in fair dignity, <laughs> and are and they're upset that they believe that the outrageous Okuna has screwed their daughter and stolen their jewels. But then here we are, and the dad is explaining and at first i wrote i I wrote in my notes oh he must have screwed their wives because we've already heard about how he's screwing his way through the enterprise he's been with terry hatcher he got the wink and the smile from diana (laughs) okay it wasn't a wink but i swear to god it was there and um so it's like he's so mad i thought oh he's gonna have screwed his wife i thought it was gonna be his wife and I was like, oh, it's one of those old fashioned, like, let's be mad at the man instead of the woman who cheated on me thing. And I was like, this yeah. is so weird. And then to make it 7,000 times worse, it was the daughter. And I was like, Ugh. <laughs> and then they bring her onto the view screen. And that woman deserves an Emmy because she was exuding the hatred for the way that the men were talking about her uh-huh. the whole time through her eyes through that v- view screen and directly into my brain she was so good at being like 
irritated as hell the way they were talking about her like she wasn't a real person. And the show even commented on that because like Deanna talks about how they must have uh, very archaic uh, ideas about uh, paternal responsibility and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. Like the the idea that, oh, well, he because obviously these are different cultures. They're aliens, but they look human and whatnot. And she's just like, well, they must have, you know, very uh, archaic views about honor and marry her to make a decent to make an honest woman of her or stuff like that. And it's just like she's like, yeah, these are concepts that I don't know. We we left in the past, obviously, in the future uh, in in the Federation. You can just screw whoever you want. And uh, it's fine. Right. (laughs) Well, and then there's the line. And this is said by Han Solo himself. Everyone is talking about me and no one is talking to me. And Uh then the camera immediately cuts to the pregnant girl. And I was like, okay, so someone who made this episode knows what they're doing a little bit, you know? Uh Um, But, like, I felt so bad for her, the way they were talking about her. Even when the decision is made at the end that, like, she can marry... The dude. Benzoid? What was his name? (laughs) I don't remember. The the, the prince dude that was friends with Okana. Right. That that weird looking teenage boy. Um, Like, I don't know. Like, I was so mad at how much she just had to stand there and take it. And then she tries to stand up for herself. And she's like, okay, I'm not going to put up with this. No, I'm not marrying anybody. And the way that the episode resolves it is to have Sebastian Stan go over and mansplain to her why she needs to get married to the dude. I would. Yeah. I don't know. I hated this episode. I hated everything about it. I hated the Jerry Lewis episode. I mean, like, I hated space Africa, racist space Af- Wakanda for reasons, like, actually. But this, this one, I just hate. I just hate it. It's definitely, uh, it, it's an episode that I watch and I go, uh, who was this for exactly? Yeah, who was this for? That's a good point, because, like, last episode, we knew who that uh, who that was for. Like, it was, and... It was for me. It, it, was, for, it was for Gay Fetch. And, um, <laughs> like, it, there was, like, a reason. Most episodes have a reason. This one didn't. The B-plot didn't jive with the main plot. The character was, like, weirdly, like you said, he's a, he's a Mary Stew, and, like, he's probably just what Gene Roddenberry thinks of himself, you know? Like, I don't know. I just, everything about it was, like, bad. And I never want to watch this one again. Well, you don't have to. (laughs) We can just, we can just uh, put it in the pile of episodes that we'll just... We don't uh, like. (laughs) We don't, we don't like, they don't have to, we don't have to consider them again. Fortunately, nothing from this episode has lasting uh, consequences other than um, that there is a record of Whoopi Goldberg telling awful jokes in the past as well as the present. <laughs> yeah, as well as the present is a good point. <laughs> I just messaged you yesterday or this morning or something. I said, what a weird time for me to meet Guinan. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so we recorded last episode before the uh, the view comments had uh, uh, surfaced where she uh, said that... Uh, the Holocaust was not about race, and that was like, ew, now she's uh, been suspended from The View for two weeks. So, right. um, I like Whoopi Goldberg as an actress. As a person, uh, her politics and, and some of her opinions, I don't know. She's, um, I don't watch The View, and, uh... <laughs> who does watch The View, actually? Like, I don't know who watches that show. I don't know who it's for either, but uh, not me, that's for sure. Not me. Yeah, it's it's just a weird time to like be like, oh, I love Guinan, I love everything about her, and then I turn on the news and I'm like, oh, <laughs> interesting. You know, it's just a weird juxtaposition. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to never seeing this episode again. And thanks for joining us today. I'm Ari. And I'm Gayfesh. And until next time... Live long and prosper. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, don't forget to subscribe and consider writing a review in your podcast service. We're on Twitter at Rest Both Worlds. Join our Patreon at patreon.com slash restofbothworlds for bonus content and hear your name at the end of each episode.